Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Last summer, um, we took my daughter Emerson to her first ever amusement park. Um, adventure spots, but it's all the rides are for like people who are this tall and it's just wonderful. And she loved every single ride and all the ones, even the ones that kind of made my stomach go like, oh, okay, this school bus with her. Cause I was like, no, I'm not going to do that one. And then she saw the one that she had not been on yet. Cause she's two and a half at this time. And she points and says, I want that. Secretly, you know, thinking myself, well, maybe we don't have to go on that one. Cause you see, I come from a long line of thrill seekers. My grandfather on my dad's side thought that my brother would be in the back seat of the car. We'd be visiting them down in Laguna Beach, and he'd take us to the top of the, the steepest hill in Laguna Beach. And if you know Laguna, there's hills. And so you take us to the top of the steepest hill, and we'd go down all the way down, you know? And us kids in the back would think it's so fun. Meanwhile, my grandmother is turning whiter and whiter as we get towards the bottom and stuff, and he would just laugh. You know, traveled to, I think, every single major amusement park in the continental United States to, to try all the biggest and baddest roller coasters. And so my daughter, Emerson, comes by this natural. In fact, I was terrified of them. I was terrified of anything that would go fast or high. And, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I didn't even like going on the swings. Flies, and I was like, oh, I don't like that feeling because I didn't like the feeling of not being in control. I couldn't stop it when I wanted to. And so I didn't like that. And so here I am. I don't know if I can do this. Now, since being a little kid, I've, I've enjoyed growing in my love for roller coasters and fast things. I've gotten okay at them. In fact, I like the ones that go fast. I like the ones that do loops. I don't like the drops. I especially don't like the slow incline. As the world gets smaller and smaller, and my bravery gets smaller and smaller, and my hands get tighter and tighter right before the big drop where your stomach goes away and you're like, I'm going to die. And then the adrenaline kicks in and you're okay after that. And so when my daughter asked to go on this roller coaster, I had a moment of pause, but she was too excited. And unfortunately she was tall enough, so we went on it together, and do we have that picture that I gave you? Here's a picture of Emmy on her first ever roller coaster last summer, two and a half years old, all smiles, all giggles, loving every minute, loving the highs and the lows, and especially loving the speed. Now, in life, we experience some of the same things. We experience highs and lows, and we experience times of speed and times of agonizing waiting. But I'd like to think that if we remember that we're riding with Jesus, it changes our perspective on all of it. So today we're going to see how Jesus handles the highs and the lows and how he invites and challenges those who follow him to exercise their faith. So let's open to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be reading starting in verse 37. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I told you that this story is going to be talking about highs and lows, and it starts with them literally traveling from a high place, the mountain, where they had witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, the voice from heaven declaring his divine identity. And now they're traveling down to where the rest of the disciples are interacting with a large crowd. So Peter, James, and John, they're still flying high after seeing and hearing those amazing things about Jesus. They're still trying to process what they experienced. Meanwhile, the rest of the disciples have been a little overwhelmed by the demands of the crowd in the absence of Jesus. They've fallen short on at least one request, so they're probably anxiously awaiting Jesus' return. But notice, they're not the first ones to talk to Jesus. Instead, a man calls out from the crowd, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, my only child. Now, if you've been paying attention and following along with our journey through the Gospel of Luke, your mind is probably being transported back to a few previous stories. We're reminded of just last week when the voice from heaven identified Jesus as my son. We're reminded of the time when Jesus entered the town of Nain, and he saw the funeral procession for the only son of a widow, causing him to raise that boy to life, restoring him to his mother. And here again is a man who is desperate for the healing of his only child. So we find out from the father's description of what ails his son that the boy is experiencing something that sounds a lot like grand mal seizures. They're also known as clonic tonic seizures where the person experiences phases of stiffening and then jerking. And so the father lets Jesus know that he first asked the disciples to help, but they were unable to do anything. Maybe that's why they've been silent up to this point, right? Like, after all, it wasn't too long ago that Jesus commissioned them. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure all diseases It was literally just at the beginning of chapter 9. It was 36 verses ago that Jesus gave them that. But that was when Jesus had sent them out on their own to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And they had done just that. They preached the good news and they healed people. But this time around, they're unable to. Now, Luke's version of the story doesn't give us as many details as Matthew or Mark include. Matthew's recollection of this time includes Jesus pointing out that faith as small as a mustard seed could move mountains and cast out demons. 
Mark's rendition of this story has the father admitting that he needs Jesus to help him. Oh, I believe, help me in my disbelief. It also includes the disciples finding out that this type of healing requires prayer. But our text today in Luke doesn't include those details. Luke doesn't seem as concerned with how Jesus is able to do the healing. Instead, Luke focuses on who Jesus is, that he has the power and authority to cast out a demon, heal the boy, and restore him to his father. Because that's the amazing part of the story. While the father is bringing the boy to Jesus, the boy experiences convulsions and is thrown to the ground, starts foaming at the mouth, just like a seizure would do. But Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Jesus demonstrates that his divine power over the dark, harmful presence is absolute. And with Jesus, divine power leads to physical healing. And physical healing leads to the restoration of relationships. See, once again, we see that Jesus brings total healing, not just for those who are ill, but the healing for their families and healing for the community. See, this is the type of healing that Jesus' disciples were not able to do on their own before he came back down the mountain. Maybe that's why Jesus said what he did before he performed the healing. I mean, I got a little ahead of myself describing the healing and everything. I skipped over a few of Jesus' words. You probably caught it. But when the father tells Jesus about his son and about the fact that the disciples couldn't do anything about it, Jesus offers some words that are a little harsh. This is verse 41. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Whoa. These seem like pretty strong words, right? And without being able to hear the tone of voice that Jesus was using, they come across as negative and biting. But who is Jesus speaking to? Okay, because some people go, oh, is he speaking to the Father? Is he speaking to the disciples? Is he speaking to the crowd? Well, we know that this is not directed at the Father, Because when Jesus speaks of a generation, and when he asks, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you, he's speaking to plural people. Generation refers to a group of people connected by age or ethnicity. And the two times that he says you, how long shall I put up with you and stay with you, it's plural, so it can be translated as y'all again. How long shall I put up with you all? How long shall I stay with you all? So who is Jesus speaking to? Well, there's some disagreement among biblical scholars on this. There's some people who think that Jesus is indicting his disciples for not being able to cast out the demon. Jesus has been slowly raising up his followers to join him in the work he's doing, and he's actually given them all they need to preach and to heal. And so when he comes back from a night of prayer and finds their lack of ability finds out how not ready they are to continue his work without him, well, maybe he just calls them out. Now, other scholars think that Jesus is actually making a general chastisement against unbelieving Israel, the ones who are unwilling to receive their Messiah and the healing that he brings. 
But honestly, it's not super clear which one the text is driving at. That's why there's disagreement. And as your pastor, I've got to admit, I don't fully know. But I lean more towards the first one, where Jesus is calling out his disciples. And that's because of what comes next in our passage. Now, the disciples have tried and failed to heal this kid. And apparently, they've either just moved on to other people, (laughs) or they've just given up, right? Because they're not coming to Jesus for help when he arrives. You would think that if they really cared, they they would have been the first ones to Jesus. Oh, yeah, hey, Jesus, there's this thing we need your help on. Can you help us make it work? Nope, they're nowhere to be found. It's the Father that presses on to seek out Jesus. And Jesus seems to scold his disciples about this. And then he heals the kid and returns him to his father. And our text says that the whole crowd that was present was amazed at the greatness of God. And this is, it makes sense. It's a familiar scene for us. We've seen it happen before. Jesus comes into a town or a village, teaches and preaches with such authority that everyone is drawn to him, including people who are outcasts or needy in some way. And so Jesus heals them and restores them, and the whole town or village is amazed, knowing that God is present in some remarkable way. And usually, they want to celebrate or crown Jesus as king, but he stops those attempts. He stops them trying to get him into a phase of upward expansion, and he turns the conversation towards the sacrificial nature of the kingdom of God, where justice comes through service, not through the sword. So here we go again. Jesus has done something incredible, and the people are all just marveling at him. But Jesus doesn't let the disciples get caught up in the reveling of the crowd. Instead, he points forward to what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He points forward to betrayal, to death. In fact, our text tells us that Jesus said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, right? Like he says, whoa, 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 listen carefully, pay attention. Do I have your attention? And if you actually wanted to take the Greek and translate it more literally, he would say, put these words in your ears. What I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. See, Jesus knows that in the midst of the celebration of crowds, the most important thing that he has to remind his followers of in that moment is that this sort of admiration is short-lived. Jesus knows that the concept of sacrifice and, and suffering, it isn't one that comes naturally to his followers. So he chooses to teach it plainly and repeatedly so that they can learn. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that following him isn't always safe. But the disciples don't get it. They don't understand how betrayal could happen to someone that they just confessed as the Messiah. How can such a popular person who is clearly chosen by God be someone who's subjected to suffering? How could that be God's plan? And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this. I don't like to think of the fact that following Jesus isn't always safe. So I often let obstacles stop me. 
I feel a prompt from God to reach out to someone or to start praying for something. But when it gets difficult or when I come up against resistance, I quickly shrink away, just like the disciples shrank away from the father and his son who was experiencing convulsions. And we all do this to some extent, don't we? We take our cues about whether or not God is in something or whether or not we're on the right path from whether or not we feel successful or safe, right? Like, well, is the new Bible study going well? Yeah, praise God. Isn't this great? Did the conversation with the neighbor go better than you expected? Was it seeming smooth? Were they open to you? That's great. God is leading the way. But if it's not going well, if our friends start to get flaky and don't come to our Bible study every time, if the neighbor seems a bit closed off to you, well, I don't know, maybe it's just better to protect yourself. Maybe it's better not to put ourselves into a difficult situation where it's hard. Maybe God's not in that. But following Jesus isn't always safe. If it were always safe and easy, it wouldn't require faith, would it? See, Jesus didn't promise our victory. He didn't promise us a life of ease if we follow him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. And then he demonstrated that kingdom of God with his downwardly mobile life, his life of sacrificial service. And that's why he's taking the disciples aside at this moment, explicitly telling them that his identity as the Messiah involves both the exalted status as the chosen son of God as well as his rejection by humanity. And he's inviting them to trust him, to have faith in the fact that both, to have faith in him, both in the face of success as well as possible failure. And the question is, well, are the disciples truly with him? Are they willing to have faith through the highs and the lows, through the healings and the droughts? Are they willing to have faith in him through the crowds and the crucifixion? Or are they only in it for the good times? And then they pull back when it gets hard or when they fail. I mean, did you notice who had the most faith at the beginning of our story? It wasn't the disciples, since they're not really anywhere to be found seeking Jesus. I mean, maybe they were busy moving on to other people that they thought they could help. Or maybe they were just feeling sorry for themselves that they couldn't help this one boy, and so they're shrinking back. But the Father is the one who demonstrated faith. He sought out Jesus. His faith pressed forward beyond the failure that he had met with the disciples. He asked the disciples for help. They couldn't help him. And that didn't stop him. He pressed forward to continue to seek out Jesus. His faith pressed forward beyond failure. Does ours? Do we press forward beyond failure? Do we put our faith in Jesus even when it doesn't seem safe to our well-kept and our quiet lives? Or do we have fair-weather faith? You know, just like the fair-weather fans in sports, they're the ones who, uh, they're only around, they're only show, showing up and declaring their support for the team when 
things are going well, when we're on a winning streak. But if the team's not doing so well, or they're on a losing streak, the Fairweather fans are nowhere to be found. They've found something else to fill their time with. You know, these last few years have they've really put a lot of pressure on all followers of Jesus. We've been through a pandemic, political stress, national crises, tension from so many sources, isolation on top of that. And through it all, there's been many followers of Jesus that have decided that the church family that they were involved with, it wasn't the right fit for them anymore. I mean, maybe they were tired of the fighting. Maybe they were tired of the waiting. Maybe they found a new church family to be a part of, or maybe they didn't feel like they needed to be part of one at all anymore. And this isn't new. It's been happening for a long time. But the last few years have accelerated this for many people. Many of us have friends and family that have stopped going to church or who have stopped being willing to talk about matters of faith. And it hurts. It's really sad to lose the connections with people that once felt close. I mean, I've, I've grieved it myself. And I've often wondered if people leaving has meant that they no longer want to follow Jesus. And so I easily assume that it means that they've turned their backs on the faith. And maybe that is true for some. But maybe for others, the hurt and the tension of the church became too much of a burden on their faith. And and then I look at my own faith, and I realize how susceptible I am to this burden mentality too. Like, I easily let my faith in Jesus ride the waves of my feelings day to day. Like, some days, I'm feeling healthy, connected to my family. I have a sense of purpose in what I'm doing, and those are good days. I feel connected to God on those days. And other days, I feel bored or depressed or just listless, and God feels distant, and I don't really want to connect with him. So it's easier to distract myself or zone out or or find some other project to just put my effort in, create my own sense of meaning and accomplishment over here. I mean, I can easily have fair-weather faith. What about you? But what if, what if we didn't keep our faith resting on our own effort or our own feelings? What if we remembered that our faith is in Jesus, the chosen Son of God? Like, what if we remembered that Jesus already knows how fickle we can be? That's why he accomplished what we couldn't accomplish on our own. See, Jesus has already cleansed us of the sinful nature that kept us enslaved unable to follow God. That's one of the things we reminded ourselves of at May's baptism this morning. See, we were like that that boy in our story, unable to control ourselves when the convulsions came on. That's what it was like when we were living in our sinful nature. When it comes on, you can't stop it. Unable to speak, unable to breathe, unable to be helped by human intervention. But Jesus 
through the power that he proved when he beat death and rose to life. Through that power, he has cast out the power of darkness in our life. He has healed us so that we can truly live and he's restored us to relationship with our Heavenly Father. So what if we responded in faith like the Father in our story who pressed forward in faith to seek out Jesus? Because even though following Jesus can be great sometimes, he promised that there would be lows along with the highs. And we can get discouraged by the setbacks. We can get discouraged by loss or hardship. But see, the father in the story kept pressing forward to find Jesus, even after meeting failure with the disciples. So what if we pressed into prayer when we're experiencing lows? What if we recommitted to studying Scripture when we're experiencing despair? What if we trusted that Jesus can handle our hardship? See, following Jesus isn't always safe, but we can seek out Jesus in the lows. See, we can equally get distracted by the highs, though, can't we? We can equally get distracted by signs of success. But every time Jesus' disciples were witnesses of incredible miracles and times of great success in ministry, Jesus always redirected them to not get caught up in that. He pointed them back to the kingdom of God shown in small, simple, slow demonstrations of love and care. Those who try to be first won't win, but those who sacrifice for others and serve them are the ones of highest regard in the kingdom of God. So what if we press into prayer and the word when we're experiencing success and failure, not getting caught up in that, but continuing, doubling down into pressing into prayer? What if we trusted Jesus to show us a true path to his abundant life in the kingdom of God? See, following Jesus isn't always safe, but we can seek out Jesus in the highs as well as in the lows because Jesus has proven himself to be the chosen son of God, the savior of the world. Jesus has already given you grace and forgiveness. He has already made you righteous with God. He has already invited you into a life of following him each and every day, learning how to join him in mission offering healing and restoration to the world that God loves. And isn't that good news? Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.